what a beautiful Sunday morning that we can assemble together in order to worship God in spirit and in truth. And for those who are present with us as visitors, as has already been indicated, we're so delighted that you've chosen to be with us, and we hope that you will take your Bible in hand in this part of our service and study with us from the Scriptures those great truths that are revealed therein for our edification. We have a couple of ushers that will be coming down the aisle. They have the study guides that we customarily make available on Sundays. We will only have the one outline this morning, of course. Our afternoon service will be devoted primarily to singing, and that will follow our Bible study period and a meal uh, thereafter. And we'll reconvene about 12.30. Children's class will be at 12.15. So we hope that you will stay with us if you're visiting and enjoy the meal and uh, then stay for the afternoon service as well as we sing praises to God. As you see on the screen, I'm talking today about a grand and glorious theme, the love of God for sinful man. As we study this lesson, we will rehearse the story of Jesus and how he was the great demonstration of God's love for sinful men. There's no way that we can exhaust this subject in one sermon or even in many sermons. It has been the theme of countless thousands of sermons throughout the centuries. And yet there is a need to call to our remembrance the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That text has been analyzed many, many times. For God, the greatest being, so loved, the greatest love, the world, the greatest object of one's love. God created the world, the physical globe, but also the masses of humanity that have inhabited this globe throughout the centuries. The world in the Bible represents those that choose not to follow God. And it's about those that he is here speaking. He loved the lost masses of humanity because they were steeped in sin. But in spite of their sinfulness, he loved them so much that he gave. And some have pointed out this is the greatest action and the greatest gift that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten translates a term that talks about one of a kind. One, only one could fulfill the need that existed to accomplish the redemption of man from sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth, they do not deny, but those must believe in him 
as the only begotten Son of God, as the Savior of the world. And having done so, they should not perish. doesn't say they will not, shall not. They should not. Because we know there are some who believe and then become unbelievers. And unbelief will cause anyone to be lost. Every unbeliever will be lost. God's desire is that all would have everlasting life, but we know that not all will make that choice. Let's look at some things about God's love this morning and be aware of the fact that this book, the Bible, is a record of God's love for mankind. You can open it to just about any location and you will find evidence of God's love for sinful men. The greatest challenge ever that we face as human beings is to love God with all our heart. That commandment was given to the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. Jesus would later quote that text in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, to one who inquired, what is the greatest commandment? And they no doubt figured that the Lord would call forth one of the Ten Commandments. But no, he chose the introductory commandment to the Ten Commandments and said the greatest commandment is you are to love God with all your heart. As we said, uh, or have said throughout the century or throughout the years in this area, that just about covers it, doesn't it? When all is said and done, if you love God with all your heart, in reference to, to the children of Israel, those other ten would have followed. But they fail to comprehend that, just as many today fail to comprehend it. The greatest desire that we'll ever have, the greatest ambition we'll ever have, will be to love God in that way with all our heart and to do His will. That is the most noble aspiration that any human being will ever have. The greatest theme that you could ever study and discuss and proclaim is the marvelous scheme of redemption. Remember Amanzo Jones saying that? The marvelous scheme of redemption. Robert Milligan wrote a book with that title. It's a classic work. It's simply called The Scheme of Redemption. He takes us from Genesis through Revelation. And the greatest demonstration of love ever is found in the text that we've already discussed. Here's some questions I want us to ask about God's love. How far does God's love reach? Have you ever thought about that? Well, God is in heaven, we say. We see demonstrations of God in nature and in all things with which we have to do. In Psalm 8, the psalm begins and ends with the proclamation, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But in between, there are some questions, one of which is, 
What is man that thou art mindful of him? And he goes on to describe what a wonderful being God created when he created man and woman. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. But we know that man often fails to live up to the desires of his creator. I'm sure that when Henry Ford invented the T-model, that he uh, probably had to fool around with it to ever get it exactly like he wanted it. There's an old story that told, was told about a gentleman who was having trouble with his Model T. And uh, it just so happened that somebody happened along and stopped to ask him if he was having trouble. And he said, yeah, I can't get this machine to run. And the fellow said, I'll tell you what, try this. And he tried it. The old Model T started up and he said, how did you know what I was supposed to do? And he said, sir, I'm Henry Ford. I invented that thing. God invented us. He knows what we need. He knows what makes us operate efficiently and properly. And he's given us an instruction manual on how to do that. We need to inquire of him. What is man? He's not even able to guide his own steps, Jeremiah 10, 23 tells us. He may think that he's doing fine, only to find out that he's failed. It's not what I think, but what I believe based upon what God has said that really matters. But God's love reaches from heaven to earth. He loves mankind. That's the reason He gave His only begotten Son. His love reaches to the darkest depths of depravity. I'm talking about utter sinfulness. As dark and deep as you can imagine, wickedness, corruption, terms like that are used to describe sinful men. There are some who sin through weakness. There are even sins that we commit sometimes not knowing any better until we find out the truth of the matter. But the Bible describes people who love sin. They relish it. They just love to go deeper and deeper into sin. And it seems that nothing is beyond them. There's just no love, no sense of right and wrong within them. And they just simply do not care. Read the book of Romans again. And look at how depraved the Gentile world was when the gospel was brought to it. I mean, you read Romans 1 and you think, man alive, how could God ever love these people enough to give his son so that they could be saved? And the book of Romans just is a beautiful declaration concerning God's love for man through the giving of His Son 
and the gospel becoming the power of God unto salvation, as is stated in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the story of God's love. The Romans had been languishing and wallowing in all of that mire of sin and degradation. And God said, I still love them. And I'm going to give my son so that they can be saved. A lot of the Jews resented that because they thought the Messiah was going to be their Messiah and that he would bring peace and, and oversee a kingdom made up of the Jews to free them from all of their uh, oppressors. But lo and behold, they had failed to look at and read and study the passages throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the fact that that king who was coming would establish a kingdom in which all people could live and serve. Countless texts in the Old Testament that point to the fact that God had plans in mind, not just for the Jews, but through Abraham's seed to bless all nations. And that is exactly what he accomplished. And before you leave the book of Romans, be sure you read the first few verses of chapter 2, because Paul in chapter 1 described the dark conditions in which the Gentiles were living. And he said, at the beginning of chapter 2, now you be careful, my Jewish brethren, I'm paraphrasing now, be careful that you don't judge them too harshly because you are committing the same sins. So not only were the Gentiles very depraved, but so were the Jews. How do we know that? Well, the greatest demonstration of their depravity is the way that they treated the Son of God. The things that they did to Him and the entrapments that they set in order to find fault with it. The love of God reaches, as the song says, to the lowest hell. I read many years ago the story of Clyde Thompson, the meanest man in Texas. He had, from the descriptions given, hands that would dwarf mine and yours too. Hands that were so strong, he could he literally killed a man with his hands. And he was feared while he was in prison. But someone, I can't remember who, got him a Bible. He began reading it, studying it. Someone went to study with him. He was eventually baptized into Christ. And he devoted the rest of his life to telling people about God's love. That tells us how far God's love will reach. Second question, how powerful is God's love? Well, it's powerful enough to break hard hearts. The people who had crucified Christ had hearts that were hardened. Jesus said, your heart is far from me. Their hearts were calloused and just seemed to be impossible to penetrate. But along came the gospel. 
and the apostles with Peter seemingly being the chief spokesman on the day of Pentecost initially. There's no doubt that the other apostles taught on that occasion as well. They're in the temple complex. But Peter's sermon, at least part of it, is recorded for us. In Acts 2, we know that with many other words he spoke to the people. But you'll remember that he said in verse 37 that when the people heard these things, they were pricked in their hearts. Who were these people? Some of the same people that had cried out just a few weeks before, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. They wanted to be rid of him to get him out of their lives. He was looked upon as a threat to, quote, the establishment. He was an outsider, an outcast. He came out of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, the city of kings. So how could he be the Savior of the world? But now they learned that indeed, because of the things that were said in the Old Testament, Peter refers to passage after passage to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Son of God and was the King that had been promised and that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and now reigns at the right hand of God. And those people said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized their predicament. And Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you, listen to this now, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Their sins could be remitted by means of the blood of Christ. Those hearts were at one time hard hearts. But the gospel of Christ softened them, made them pliable and receptive to the truth. The love of God has the power to comfort troubled hearts. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. We just finished studying that in, in the Wednesday night class. Great comfort. That love has the power to humble proud hearts. Do you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? how he became so proud and arrogant, the most powerful man in the world at that time, but he ended up living like an animal. He grazed, I guess you could say, like an animal. And no doubt he looked terrible. He was brought low because of his pride. And he realized that he had failed God. In Psalm 101, verse 5, we find how God feels about a proud heart. He said, Whoso privately or privily slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Also him that hath a high look and a proud heart, I will not suffer. I'm not going to tolerate that indefinitely. The gospel is the power of God to save man. Until an individual humbles himself, he will never become obedient. Humility is a forerunner of obedience to the gospel. We live in a very proud world, don't we? 
People are so arrogant sometimes even. There's a statement in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, that I think is interesting. He said, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder or older ones. This is not a, uh, though they would be included, not a direct uh, affirmation about the elders of the church. But to any who are older, those who are younger should show respect. That would be males or females. He said, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The love of God is powerful enough to humble a proud heart. And I should add to this that the power, the uh, love of God is powerful enough to mend a broken heart. Remember the saying, as long as you give him all the pieces, he can mend a broken heart. And those people on Pentecost, I think they would have had broken hearts. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, the psalmist said, is of utmost importance. And until an individual who is living in sin has a broken heart, and how could he not when he hears the sweet story of God's love in the giving of His Son. How far will God's love go? Remember Jesus taught His disciples, when you are compelled to go a mile, go an extra mile. That's in Matthew 5, verse 41. The first part of it would suggest to us and demand of us the going of the first mile. The Jewish person that was approached by a Roman soldier or a Roman dignitary and said, here, carry my load, was obligated by Roman law to carry that load for one mile. And it has been noted by historians and Bible scholars and commentators that many of the Jews had a mile marked off in every direction from their house, north, south, east, and west. Whichever way the road ran, they had measured a mile down the road and put up a marker. That's as far as they had to carry that load for that Roman authority. And I have no doubt that many of the Jewish people would carry the, well, let's say the, the knapsack, the what do we call them now? I was talking about them. The backpacks. I feel sorry for some of our young kids. Sometimes I have to stop and wait for a bus to, to let the kids off. And invariably they get out and they're walking like this with this huge backpack on. And I want to get out and go over and help them with their load. We usually carried our books under our arms or like this or... Maybe, well, some of the better off people had uh, book satchels. <laughs> Took me a long time to get a briefcase when I got in college, but I finally did, and it was very helpful. But you think about carrying a load for a mile. Jesus said, while you're at it, go the second mile. Now, that would really make a difference. I think E.C. Meadows is the first preacher that I heard make this point. 
he was talking about this, and he said, just imagine what a difference it would be in the first century world when that Roman soldier come along and said, hey, you carry my load for me. And this fellow said, yes, sir, I'll be glad to. And he picks it up with a smile on his face, and he says, come, and let's, let's walk together. And, and let me tell you a story about someone that I've heard about and even knew. And he started telling him about Jesus. And he said, imagine him walking that mile. And they get to that point, and he's still busily engaged talking to this uh, soldier about the Lord. And the soldier says, uh, didn't you notice we just passed the marker? Oh, that's all right. Come on. Let's, let's, I'm enjoying this, and I hope you are. Let's, let's just walk along together a little while further. That, no doubt, is one of the reasons that the gospel was spread as quickly as it was. We've been talking about servants. Servants are those who do what they do willingly, with a good attitude and a good outlook. Whoever compels you to go a mile with him, go two. Go in the extra mile. God's love, I would suggest to you, covered the first mile, covered the second mile, and even the last mile. We sing the old hymn, when I've gone the last mile of the way. Trace Jesus' footsteps from the Mount of Olives, where he's arrested all the way back into Jerusalem, going before the Sanhedrin, going before Pilate, going before Herod. And then they bring him out of Jerusalem and he goes to Golgotha or Calvary. The love of God goes the last mile. And we are to go that last mile. Make that the application of this point to Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death. Not until death, but unto death. The martyr being led out of the city, much like Jesus was, and stoned or burned at the stake. What are they doing? They're going the last mile. The love of God is like that. It'll go the first mile, it goes the second mile, it'll go the third mile. And it'll go the last mile of the way. How long will that love last, friends? So long as God looks exists, and he's eternal because God is love. First John 4, verse 8, and again in verse 16, John simply said, God is love. If we want to know what love is, look at what God did. He sent his son to die for us when? While we were yet sinners. Romans chapter 5, that comes after chapters 1 and 2, where Jew and Gentile is condemned as being in sin. And during that time was when God gave His only begotten Son so that men could be saved. Love will last, the love of God will last as long as faithful Christians exist. How do we know that? Because they love God. And they love one another. 
And if someone says he loves God and he hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Read 1 John 3, verses 14 through 16. Oh, the wonderful story of love. How wonderful it is indeed. As long as the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, the love of God will last. It'll be known, it'll be revealed to men and women who are in sin. And it will make a difference in our world. The love of God is on display every day. Just look around you. Think of all the things that show us that God does love us. Only those who do not know God's love will fail to be moved by it. You know it. You understand it. It will have an effect upon you. And those who do not know of it, we need to be telling them about it, as we have feebly attempted to do today. He shows his love to us through his abundant blessings. Go back and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45. How that God sends, note this, his reign and his son, S-U-N, to fall and to shine upon the good and upon the evil. That's the love of God. I want to ask you a simple question this morning. Will you return love for love by loving God, humbling yourself before Him, and obeying from the heart that form of doctrine, namely the gospel, that you have heard this morning and that you no doubt have heard many times before. Those people on Pentecost turned from their sins in penitence. They were baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of their sins. And they became a joyful lot of people because they had learned about the true meaning of the love of God. You're an erring child of God and you've left your first love. Why don't you come back today? You're invited to come and let your desires be known as we stand and as we sing.